Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Kent, a spiritual home that welcomes all people of goodwill. May you leave your daily burdens at the door, open your minds and hearts, and be fully present for this time of fellowship and spiritual re-energizing. I'm Reverend Christy Anderson, an ordained interfaith minister and member of this congregation. Serving as worship associate today is Randy Bish. We are also joined by our music director, Hal Walker, and Brad Bolton, who is filling in for our RE director, Colleen Taylor. I have two announcements today. Uh, today I'm going to be challenging you to do something, but not providing you with the techniques to undertake it. So if you are motivated by today's service, there are resources listed in the thread from the web, which is found in your order of service, that pr provide excellent guidance if you would like to learn more about today's topic. As February is Black History Month, there are a number of race-related events this month. One that is listed in today's thread is a class offered by our Race for Justice team that I am facilitating. I just learned yesterday that on the same night as my class, the library will be hosting oral storytelling about the experiences of early African Americans settling in Portage County. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. I'm happy to be a part of a service today that's going to help us answer the call of love. I think most people everywhere would agree that love is the main quality that we should express in our lives. And even for people of faith, love is a major issue. For example, in the Christian faith, Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. And Buddha said, love is a gift of one's innermost soul to another so both can be made whole. The Baha'i faith says that all genuine love is divine. And Yogi Bhajan of the Sikh faith said that collective psyche of people in love changes others. But I wonder if you could explain to me where the UUs stand on love. Well, as you probably know, we have seven denominational principles. And two of them are demonstrations of love. Our first principle calls on us to respect the worth and dignity of every person. And our second principle calls on us to extend compassion in human relations. Now I'll admit, extend compassion in human relations is not particularly poetic wording compared to uh, the language of other faith traditions. In fact, the word love does not appear in our seven principles, which has always been a pet peeve of mine. Well, I understand when this was a universalist church that there was a wall somewhere before me that had the big words, God is love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I don't see that anywhere. Is it, do you use no longer have a stand about love? Well, um, with the move towards humanism uh, during the 20th century, our faith language shied away from words of emotion and sentimentality, um, which I think is a reflection of our 
you use sensibilities of rational thought. But I am happy to say that love is making a comeback in our language. <laughs> and it was our musical poets, our UU songwriters, who resurrected heartfelt love. For example, UU musician Jason Shelton composed a song titled Standing on the Side of Love, which has been embraced not only as a musical piece, but became the slogan for the denomination's social justice work. The wording of the slogan and the song has since been changed to be more inclusive and is now urging us to answer the call of love. Also, with today's hatred being spewed, we also have slogans with our social justice work like Resist, Love Resists and Side with Love. Social justice and love. So how do the Unitarian Universalists express love through social justice? Couple of examples. Um, love calls on you use to stand in public witness against injustice. It calls on us to engage in social change by influencing legislation to reflect our values. And when conversing with someone with contradictory views from our own, it urges us to listen and restrain from speaking. What was the second part? Restrain from speaking. Yes. <laughs> So I'm supposed to restrain from speaking as a way of expressing love. Sometimes, oh. as we will see today. <laughs> Come, let us worship together. Miss Colleen is really worn out today. That's why I'm here. <laughs> now, I know she likes to call you kiddos, so kiddos... All you kiddos, you know about Dr. Seuss? I bet you do. I remember Dr. Seuss when I was a kid. We've got a book to read that I, didn't, I was not aware of. What was I scared of? I'll get down here. Because I'm not scared of you. Okay. Well, I was walking in the night and I saw nothing scary. For I have never been afraid of anything not very. Remember, he's walking in the night. <clears throat> then I was deep within the woods when suddenly I spied them. I saw a pair of pale green pants with nobody inside them. I wasn't scared, but yet I stopped. What could those pants be there for? What could a pair of pants at night be standing in the air for? See him over there? Here, you want to see? There they are. <laughs> and then they moved those empty pants. They kind of started jumping. Look. And then my heart, I must admit, it kind of started thumping. Ever do that? Ever feel that in your chest? Their heart's thumping. And he's running away. It's nighttime, and he's got these green pants chasing him. So I got out. I got out fast. As fast as I could go, sir. I wasn't scared. But pants like that, I did not care for. No, sir. After that, a week went by. Then one dark night in Greenwich, 
I had to do an errand there and fetch some Greenwich spinach. Well, I had fetched the spinach. I was starting back through town when those pants raced round a corner and they almost knocked me down. Look at him, he's got a bicycle. I lost my Greenwich spinach, but I didn't even care. I ran for home, believe me. I had really had a scare. Now, bicycles were never made for pale green pants to ride. To ride them, especially spooky pale green pants with nobody inside them. And the next night, I was fishing for doubt trout on Roover River. Ever catch a doubt trout? They're hard to find. When those pants came rowing toward me, well, I started in to shiver. And by now, I was so frightened that I'll tell you, but I hate to. I screamed and rowed away and lost my hook and line and bait, too. I think I'd be scared if I saw empty green pants rowing after me. You're not scared at all, are you? You're just laughing. All right, okay. I ran and found a brickle bush. I hid myself away. I got brickles in my britches, but I stayed there anyway. I stayed all night. The next night, too. I'd be there still, no doubt, but I had to do an errand, so the next night, I went out. I had to do an errand, had to pick a peck of snide in a dark and gloomy snide field that was almost nine miles wide. I said, I do not fear... I do not fear those pants with nobody inside them. I said and said and said those words. I said them, but I lied them. Look at all those snide bushes, and he's all alone in this big nine-mile field. Then I reached inside a snide bush, and the next thing I knew, I felt my hand touch someone, and I'll bet that you know who. Oh, no, there they are. And there I was, caught in the snide. And in that dreadful place, those spooky, empty pants and I were standing face to face. Wait a minute. He has, you ever think of him now? Okay, okay, we'll just go on. I yelled for help. I screamed. I shrieked. I howled. I yelled. I cried. Oh, save me from these pale green pants with nobody inside. But then a strange thing happened. Why, those pants began to cry. Those pants began to tremble. They were just as scared as I. I never heard such whimpering, and I began to see that I was just as strange to them as they were strange to me. Now it's appropriate to laugh. <laughs> I put my arm around their waist and sat right down beside them. I calmed them down, poor empty pants, with nobody inside them. And now we meet quite often, these empty pants and I, and we never shake or tremble. We both smile and we just say, hi. So what do you, what do you think our hero learned from this experience in the woods in the night? Yes. That you should always judge someone by what they look like. Right. Even if they don't have a face, right? <laughs> so you don't judge people by what they look like. They might look different. They might wear a turban. They might wear a scarf around their head or a long coat of some kind that looks different or strange. But 
Guess what? They're people just like you and me. And what else do you think he learned? It's a little harder. They can be as afraid of you as you are of them. And they may even be more afraid because often they're in the minority. There are less of them than there are of us. And they see a lot of us and they look different and they think that they can be afraid of us. Let us now join in a time of prayer. Spirit of life and love, we awake to the complexities of living every day, an ongoing journey of contradictions, loss and discovery, confusion and understanding, pain and healing. At times we feel overwhelmed and are tempted to turn away let us gather right here, right now, to fortify our strength. May we find strength in knowing that we are not alone. We travel as companions in a mutual bond of giving and receiving. May we find strength in gratitude for our many blessings, frequently bestowed by grace. May we find strength in the goodness in the world human acts, small and large, of kindness, forgiveness, sacrifice, reconciliation. And may we find strength remembering that we are part of a larger web of sentient creations and earthly beauty. We are the embodiment of the miracle of existence itself. With renewed strength, May we lift up those who are oppressed, bring love to the lonely, and nurture the earth. Recognizing that our hands alone cannot plow under all of the barren soil, but together we can indeed plant and nourish seeds for future generations. Amen. Facebook can be a wonderful therapeutic tool that enables us to release pent-up frustrations about those hard-hearted politicians who are damaging lives and ruining our democracy. It's cathartic to spew angry rants and insults, reveling in our sense of superiority. It feels good and can energize us, especially when our friends like our comments. However, when it comes to influencing others holding different views, rants and passionate arguments are the least effective. In fact, verbal sparring actually closes minds and strengthens the opponent's personal beliefs. When I find myself in a situation where I'm confronted with someone holding a vastly different political view from my own, I tend to argue with facts. I think many of us do, as UUs were particularly drawn to rational thinking. Unfortunately, research indicates that a litany of facts is also ineffective in changing opinions. I have to admit that when I think about that, I'm a prime example of factual ineffectiveness. I am, I am terrified of flying in a plane. I have been informed over and over by people that 
the safety facts comparing traveling in a vehicle versus a plane uh, are very clear. And yet, the facts have no influence on me whatsoever. Impacting attitudes is not about changing minds. It's about changing emotions. Randy's going to share three true stories about transformative impacts using radical approaches, approaches grounded in love. The first reading incorporates comments from two interviews with Andre Michaelis, a devoted member of an extremely violent neo-Nazi hate group. A taste for violence was cultivated since being a first grade school bus bully. As a teenager, I got into the punk rock scene, which for a while was the ultimate outlet for my aggression. But like any other addiction, my thrill-seeking needed constant cranking up. So when I encountered racist skinheads, I knew I'd found something far more effective. I joined up for the kicks and to make people angry. Here at last was my chance to be a warrior for a magnificent cause to save the white race. I beat other human beings to the point of hospitalization over the color of their skin, their sexuality, or simply just for the adrenaline rush. I found that the thrill was magnified immensely when it happened in the context of an us versus them narrative I bought into the construct of race wholeheartedly and sought to justify my own attacks on innocent people according to the illusion of separation that it empowered. Each moment I spent wallowing in a desperate lie of separation from other human beings hurt me. That made me want to hurt others even more. The most powerful moments that led me away from hate were ones rooted in love. Time after time, during my seven-year stint in hate groups, I was graced with kindness and forgiveness by people I was openly hostile to because of who they were. Refusing to let my inhumanity diminish theirs, people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, and black and Latino co-workers modeled what it means to be a human being when I least deserved it, but most needed it. Unfortunately, none of those teaching moments changed me on the spot, and they rarely do. But each moment in our lives plants a seed. When seeds are rooted in human love, they become impossible to suppress. No matter how many other disgruntled white kids I managed to surround myself with, the sublime power of human kinship prevailed I got immersed in the rave scene, which couldn't have been more different from the skinhead scene. I was embraced and accepted by people who formerly I would have attacked on site. That was a very powerful thing for me, leading me from a world consumed by hate and violence to one firmly set in the basic goodness of human existence, giving me a sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. These are universal human needs. If such needs are not met in a healthy way, they will be met in a destructive way. 
Every day I am grateful for the moments in my life that demonstrated the difference. Our first UU principle calls us to respect the dignity of all. This practice by family, friends, and strangers ultimately converted Andre. As Andre stated, many who loved him prior to becoming a skinhead continued to extend him love during his seven years in a hate group. I think most of us would have found it incredibly difficult to extend such non-judgmental love. Here's an example shared by Andre that illustrates this courageous capacity, in this instance, in a stranger. This is Andre speaking. I radiated hostility, especially towards anyone with a darker skin complexion than mine. One time I was greeted by a black lady at a McDonald's cash register with a smile as warm and unconditional as the sun. When she noticed the swastika tattoo on my finger, she said, you're a better person than that. I know that's not who you are. Powerless against such compassion, I fled from her steady smile and authentic presence, never to return to that McDonald's again. The cashier used language that subtly conveyed her disdain for the symbolism of the tattoo while at the same time lifting up Andre's humanity by saying, you're a better person than that. She criticized the behavior, not the person. Although Andre fled from this uncomfortable encounter, it remained in the recesses of his heart as one of the many shining lights that ultimately overcame the darkness. Today, Andre works with hundreds of at-risk youth as the founder of the nonprofit organization, Serve to Unite. He provides them with a sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. Our next reading is from a compilation of three interviews with Megan Phelps Roper, the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, the patriarch of the Westboro Baptist Church. This is the religious hate group that pickets funerals of soldiers. They carry signs calling for more deaths because the soldiers are defending in America a land that supports the rights of homosexuals, which they consider a grievous sin. They celebrate the spread of AIDS, the September 11th the terrorist attacks and other tragedies. Megan Phelps Roper joined Westboro's picket line at the age of five. She explains, obviously we picketed because we thought we needed to. We thought it was the right thing to do, that God required it of us. It didn't feel optional. She became the church's official voice on Twitter where she expanded Westboro's reach by targeting influential users and baiting followers with her hateful posts. She dismissed their raging responses. But a few opponents took a different tack. Though they disapproved of Westboro, they approached her with curiosity and humor instead of scorn, lowering her defenseless. The first to prod her conscience was an Orthodox Jew from Jerusalem, David Abbott Ball 
who pointed out inaccuracies in her Old Testament translations and encouraged her to learn Hebrew to see for herself. Megan explains, they started asking questions and that changed the dynamics. Then I started asking questions of them. On Twitter, there was time and space to develop that rapport. It enabled me to empathize with the perspectives of other people. That was a huge part of my ability to challenge what I had been taught and then eventually walk away from it. Megan broke away with her sister when she was 26. She urges all of us to reach out in good faith to those we disagree with, to try to understand the experiences and motives that have shaped their stances, and to realize that grievous behavior isn't necessarily driven by ill intent. She explains, if you can see these people as human beings and capable of change, there is hope. We should be willing to reach out. Imagine what could happen if we kept reaching out to people like Westboro members. There's so much power in seeing the possibility of change. It was the willingness of people to reach across the chasm, to listen to me and ask me questions and try to understand where I was coming from that eventually transformed my life. When the Westboro Baptists first made headlines, I went to their website to learn more about their beliefs. I was horrified by seeing that they keep a tally of the number of people in the Bible killed by God. The Westboro followers picketed the funerals of the second graders who died in the Sandy Hook mass shooting. They carried signs that read, pray to God for more dead kids. The beliefs and actions of the Westboro clan are repulsive to me. I have never had any desire to follow their comments in an attempt to understand their motives. But David Abbott Bull took the time to do this, and it marked the beginning of the conversion of Megan when he posed non judgmental questions on her Twitter. Abbott Bull had much more knowledge about the Bible than Megan did. He could have taken a self-righteous attitude and negated her understanding. Instead, he honored her dignity and extended sincere curiosity. Abbott Bull's approach was a compassionate gift, revealing a deeply loving heart. This is a courageous example of what it means to lift up our second UU principle, which calls on us to demonstrate compassion in human relations. Abbott Bull's ability to be non-judgmental, curious, and respectful made a huge difference in the life of someone filled with hate. The last reading contains the words of Daryl Davis, an African-American blues musician. He says, I was playing music at the lounge and this white gentleman approached me and he says, hey, I really enjoy y'all's music. You know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I was kind of surprised that he didn't know the origin of that kind of music. And I said, well, 
Where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play that kind of style? He learned it from the same place I did, black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. He said, oh no, Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never heard no black man except for you play like that. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. I said, why is that? He said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he continued, we all know that black people have within them a gene that makes them violent. I said, wait a minute. I've never done a carjacking or a drive-by. How do you explain that? He didn't even pause to think about it, but he said, your gene is latent. It, it hasn't come out yet. I was dumbfounded. I used his point of reference and said, well, we all know that all white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, Name me three black serial killers. He thought about it, and he couldn't do it. I said, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, all white. I said, sir, you're a serial killer. He said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent. <laughs> he goes, well, that's stupid. I said, well, what I said was stupid, but no more stupid than what you said to me. Then he got very, very quiet, and he changed the subject. Five months later, based on that conversation, he left the Ku Klux Klan. His robe was the first robe I ever got. So I decided to go around the country and sit down with Klan members. I began to chip away at their ideology. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, you'll find that you both have something in common. As you build upon those commonalities, you're forming a relationship, and eventually you're forming a friendship. I didn't convert anybody. They just saw the light and converted themselves. Davis says, once the friendship blossoms, the Klansmen realize that their hate may be misguided. Since Davis started talking with these members, he says 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. Davis collects the robes and keeps them in his home as a reminder of the dent he has made in racism by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. Daryl must be the ultimate personification of verbal restraint. For white Unitarian Universalists, verbal restraint is a challenge, as we are people of words, passionate words. For African Americans, on the other hand, resisting the urge to express frustration, anger, disagreement, has been a necessity for their survival. Dr. David Camp, a black man who trains whites to be racial allies, explains the important role of verbal restraint in his workbook, The White Ally Toolkit. He explains, while allies may be energized by the ritual of verbally blasting whites who are not sufficiently woke, the question must be asked, 
Is such an exchange doing anything to reduce the amount of racism that people of color are facing? Reading a run-of-the-mill racist, the Race Theory Riot Act, seems rather like an emotional indulgence that does not serve the cause of racial equity. Undoubtedly, it takes a great deal of emotional and even spiritual discipline to extend dignity to people who are demonstrating racist views. It is natural to want to throttle them verbally and perhaps physically, but the discipline of resisting this lashing out at racist is the work that people of color have had to do for hundreds of years. It is now time for white allies to take on this work, even though it does not feel good. Essentially, it is the task of white allies to use their privileged status and consistently do the very hard work of recognizing the dignity of skeptics so that the white allies can help skeptics see how they are denying dignity to others. Dr. Camp is asking us to truly live our first principle to respect the dignity of each person, regardless of their beliefs and political views. This might be a good spiritual practice for us. Next time you're at a family gathering and Uncle John lashes out absurdly about immigrants, pretend to be a neutral journalist. Restrain your anger and ask sincere questions with the motive of understanding the thinking of the other. It won't be easy, and it'll trigger discomfort. By doing so, we might not change minds, but over time, we may build bridges and penetrate hearts. In uncomfortable human interactions, humility, sincere curiosity, respect, listening, and verbal restraint are powerful manifestations of love. As Dr. Martin Luther King eloquently declared, darkness cannot, dr cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. He also proclaimed that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I truly believe this. Yet I recognize that I'm sounding like the Beatles, the prophetic voices of my coming of age period who had everyone singing, all you need is love. I recognize that challenging, changing attitudes is more complex than it sounds. But I do believe that by respecting the dignity of others, hardened attitudes can be changed. As an example, for those of you younger than I am, you may not be aware that the attitudes towards drinking and driving are very different now than when I was a young adult, when drinking alcohol was considered glamorous and there was no public outcry about the dangers. But the culture has shifted due to efforts by mothers against drunk driving and others. In my younger days, I never would have imagined that same-sex marriages would be legal and accepted by a majority of Americans. Culture changes continue constantly. They begin 
with attitude changes of individuals. Today we've heard the stories of hate-filled extremists who have completely shifted their thinking and behavior. So when we're feeling defeated and overwhelmed by the hate prevalent in current society, remember that each of us can make a difference. Yes, we desperately need to make political and institutional changes, but we can't be successful unless we simultaneously rise up as justice warriors who can change the hearts of opponents. When grounded in non-judgmental love, we each possess the power to sincerely listen, acknowledge commonalities, and begin to bridge the divide. So go out into the world and be brave. Show mercy, convey dignity, and bestow love on those who least deserve it. You may not ever see a difference when you extend the hand of love. But remember, your efforts could ultimately soften or change a heart and may transform you as well. May it be so. Love grows right now when I smile with you. Our hearts expand in the light of this room. These eyes are widening eyes and I know this voice defines the cries of my soul. My heart is truly beginning to bloom. Let's open the windows and open the doors and notice this moment like never before. Raise the whole building and rise up above To the part of us that feels and knows how to love We'll sing of the goodness, speak of the truth And the joy in our hearts will enlighten this room No matter your struggle, no matter your pain There's a love right now, it's bringing on a change So open your eyes and take in the view Cause right now I'm smiling with Right now I'm smiling Right now I'm smiling Right now I'm smiling With you Love grows right now When I smile with you Our hearts expand In the light of this room These eyes are widening eyes and I know this voice defines the cries of my soul. My heart is truly beginning to bloom. My heart is truly beginning to bloom. My heart is truly beginning to bloom. Psychoanalyst and poet Clarissa Pinkola Estes declares, the light of your soul throws sparks, can send up flares, causes proper matters to catch fire, to display the lantern of soul in shadowy times like these, to be fierce and to show mercy toward others, both are acts of immense bravery and greatest necessity.
Struggling souls catch light from other souls who are fully lit and willing to show it. If you would help to calm the tumult, this is one of the strongest things you can do. The UUA website proclaims that Unitarian Universalists affirm unconditional universal love as a foundation and a grounding for our actions in the world. May we go forth and embody this declaration. <laughs>